Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. In August 1780, the British government seemed to have regained control of Georgia and South Carolina. If, for some reason, peace talks had begun at that moment, say if there had been a major confrontation between the British and French fleets and the French had decisively lost, there was a real possibility that both colonies would have remained under control of the king, along with Florida and Canada, which we often forget did remain under control of the king. But just a year later... The British army controlled only the towns of Charleston and Savannah, and the perennial dream of a southern strategy by which Britain would first win the South, and then the rest of the colonies was in ashes, and all this before Yorktown. With me to discuss that momentous change in the American Revolution, and really in American history, is John Buchanan, author of The Road to Charleston, Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution, just published by the University of Virginia Press. It is a sequel to his popular and I would highly highly recommended book, The Road to Guilford Courthouse, The Revolution in the Carolinas. Mr. Buchanan, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. So you uh, served the Metropolitan Museum of Art for decades. Um, yes. Uh, as a, as a, it was a, it was a, you were involved with, what was exactly your position? I, I never quite understood the title. Yeah, I, I, I went there first as a museum archivist, and then five years later, uh, I was appointed by the director um, uh, chief registrar. Now, the registrar in American museums uh, not only keeps the records of holdings and the records of loans going in and out, but uh, also is in charge of the movement of art, uh, that is packing, transportation, security and transit, and fine arts insurance. Oh my! And uh, so that's what I—that's what I did most of the time that I for 22 years. So you were in charge, in, in effect, of many millions, as, as people would say. Yes, and I. I travel the world, instead of joining the Navy and seeing the uh, the world, I joined the museum and saw the world. Yeah, well, you uh, you get to see the insides of other museums, which is also... I did, I did. Fascinating. Uh, a lot better than being seasick. Uh, yeah, how... and, and I also gained uh, an appreciation of logistics, which, of course, uh, came into my writing. How did you become interested in the, in the revolution in the South? Uh... Because most Americans uh, had no idea of uh, what Cornwallis was doing before Yorktown. Uh, Cornwallis today, I think, to uh, the American public is associated with Yorktown. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, while I was working on the first book, The Road to Guilford Courthouse, having lunch with a friend, highly intelligent guy, well-educated, well-read, and he said, what are you writing on? And I told him, and he said, uh, hmm. He said, you know, I don't know what happened south of Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, and I kept running into that in one way or another as I told people what I was working on. Yeah, the um, the textbook, I think the high school textbook knowledge of the revolution, uh, we have Mammoth Courthouse and then John Paul Jones and then right. something in the south, if you're paying attention, um, maybe Charleston Falls and then Yorktown. Yorktown, and that's the Yorktown end. Yorktown is, yeah. is 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 pretty much it. Yes, yeah, pretty much it. Um, yeah. 
so, but how did you be, I mean, how, why weren't you like your friend? How did you actually become interested in, in the, in the revolution in the South? Well, actually I, I had read some, uh, uh, on, on the revolution in the South and I knew that, uh, Cornwallis had served down there, uh, and had been second in command when, when the British invasion took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I I read the few works that had been done on it, and I wasn't satisfied with them, and felt that I wanted to do my own. <laughs> so you wanted to write the book that you wanted to read. Which is That's right. Always a good That's start. Right. Always a good starting point. Yeah. Um, so the the revolution in the South. I mean, for those of us who who know it, I think is is deeply fascinating. Um, and what what what's part of your fascination with it? It was a sweeping war of movement. Uh, it, uh, yeah, as, as you know, when the backcountry rebels rose against British occupation, uh, they mounted their horses. Uh, and in fact, uh, Lord Rawdon, uh, who was um, Cornwallis's deputy in the field, uh, or what the British called the frontier, said the reason that their mobility was the reason we have never been able to bring them to a decisive action. They fought a classic guerrilla war uh, in which if the situation and the terrain favored them, they fought. If it didn't, they left. Uh, there's uh, there's one uh, incident, uh, and I, I believe I, uh, I uh, wrote about this in the Road to Guilford Courthouse, which they attacked. Uh, scattered a, a British unit, which recovered uh, and was about to um, uh, to go on the offensive against them, and they just left. And they got to a ridge overlooking uh, the ground where they had fought, <laughs> and they they got off their horses, turned their backs on the enemy, dropped their pants, and bent over and mooned them. Then <laughs> <laughs> they rode off again. What um, so this is the classic guerrilla war, um, which we don't often think of as having occurred in the United States, but occurred yeah. for years with a with a vengeance. And part of right. that was it was in many ways. I like to tell students it's the first American Civil War. Um, That's right. And it uh, in in ways <laughs> in a true Civil War fashion. It's much more like Northern Ireland, I think, than uh, even the American Civil War. There are more Unionists uh, in the South than people generally think during the American Civil War, and yet the divisions uh, within the American Revolution are much more dramatic. Um, yes. Um, talk about that, if you would. Uh, well, <clears throat> um, not only did friends and neighbors split, but families split. Um, uh, one one of the well-known stories uh is of um, uh, early in the war, spring of 1780, uh, a, a militia band attacked uh, the house of a man named Stallion, so where some Tories had gathered. And the head of the American militia band uh, was a Captain Love, Mrs. Stallion, Love's sister. And um, uh, she ran out and tried to stop the fighting, and her brother told her it was too late. They had to surrender. She ran back, and um, uh, she was killed by a ball shot through the opposite door. And uh, uh, then the Tories surrendered a little later, and uh, uh, Stallions and, and Love met. As, as the uh, memoir writer Thomas uh, uh, Brown, who was there, um, uh, Thomas Young, rather, who was there, 
wrote, he said, they shed bitter tears. And then Stallions was uh, sent on parole to bury his wife and arrange his affairs. And uh, this uh, uh, divisions between families, friends, neighbors just went on and on. And it, Tragic. Uh, yeah, it is. And, and you have people, of course, um, switching sides. Um, sure. And, of course, um, the, the rebel general, uh, William Moultrie, who left us a wonderful memoir, uh, his brother, was a Tory mm-hmm. and went to England after the war. And uh, people may know that uh, Benjamin Franklin's son, uh, William, I believe his name was, yeah. uh, was a Tory. Yeah. Yeah. The And you have people like um, uh, the famous is it, is it William Cunningham, who is at first a, a rebel uh, for the first two years yes. of the war and then for obscure reasons uh, becomes the most hated and notorious uh, loyalist in the backcountry. Well, that's a high bar, but there he is one of the most hated and notorious loyalists. And he goes into exile in the Bahamas, I believe. Yes, Bloody Bill Cunningham, yeah. he was called. And and uh, uh, he was uh, <clears throat> uh, became famous because of the Bloody Scout, in which he led a band late in the war uh, into the far backcountry. And uh, it was just a war of, of, of uh, plundering, burning, and murdering, and had no military application. Mm-hmm. It was just uh, a raid of vengeance. And there, are, and there are many raids of vengeance like that. And Thomas, yes. Young, Thomas Young and is it James Collins and their little wonderful little uh, memoirs, uh, they yes. describe taking their own vengeance on, on people that had harmed someone uh, in That's their right. family. Or, so this is, um, it is, and this is actually, well, I think the same thing happened in Westchester County, New York. Yes, um, it did. I know the same thing happened in Monmouth County, New Jersey. Places that are close to the lines between the British Army and the Amer- Continental Army always right. see such violence. But it's, it, what's impressive or horrific is how this extends over the entirety of the Carolinas, both yes. of them, and Georgia. Yes, um, yeah. So what's the situation at, at the beginning of your book? You start right after a Guilford courthouse. So this has been going on um, there. And what's quite always striking is that there are, I mean, epical, what should be an epical victory of, of Cornwallis at Camden when he basically destroys the all of the American army south of Philadelphia, I think, or maybe, right. you know, I don't, don't think that's overstating it um, yet. Almost immediately, like a thunder following that battle, comes a a, a defeat of British forces at King's Mountain or Loyalist forces at King's Mountain. So we have a continuous seesaw back and forth throughout the war in the South. Yes, yes. And and, uh, King's Kings Mountain is the uh, the battle in which um, a a force of a thousand Tories uh, under Major Patrick Ferguson was literally destroyed uh, by uh, by American militia, rebel militia. And uh, Sir Henry Clinton, uh, then commander in chief, um, later after the war, writes in his memoir of the war uh, that it was the first link in a chain of evils Hmm. uh, that led to the British defeat. Particularly because that's how he considered it. Yeah, particularly because what 200 of those uh, loyalists were from New Jersey or New York. Um, but the remainder yes. were, were South Carolinians. Um, oh yes, being yes. Tra- being trained in by a highly effective uh, training officer into That's right. what would have been a what would have been provincial forces. I think. I mean, yeah. Uh, which it was it was really good counterinsurgency tactics and 
um, on Patrick Ferguson's part, and the uh, Kings Mountain puts an end to that, puts an end to him. Oh yeah, put, yeah, he was killed, um, and um, uh, it it really destroyed Tory morale in the backcountry. The backcountry was key. Yeah. Uh, Lord Cornwallis uh, said it himself. He 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 wrote a letter, in in which he said uh, that. Uh, the success in the, uh, 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 of, of the war uh, depends totally upon the backcountry. We we should and, probably uh, explain what we mean by backcountry, since we haven't we're so used to it uh, talking about it. We right. haven't defined our terms. Well, uh, I I define the Carolina backcountry. Let's say in South Carolina, which was the main theater of the war, that once you get to today's I ninety five. Hmm. You know, going down to Florida. Yeah. When you get when you get west of I ninety five, you're starting to get into the back country. Uh, what was the back country then? Uh, the mid back country, uh, where Camden was located, the major base at Camden, and then you get beyond Camden into the far back country, uh, the modern towns of uh, Spartanburg, uh, ninety six, the little village of ninety six. Um, that's what we mean by the back country, and the back country was a newly settled land. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really didn't start to uh, fill up until about uh, the 1760s, and two thirds of the white population uh, in in South Carolina lived in the back country, uh, and that's why it was so important. It, which uh, is m- most. Most of the white population was there. Which is quite incredible since, as you say, it was only started to really be settled, oh gosh, I'd say 1760s, 1755 yes. at the earliest. Yes. And yet yes. already, uh, already two-thirds of the population is living in what is sort of a howling desert, except it has a lot more water and trees. But That's it, right. it is so, it is extraordinary to when you're there to, to consider how far it is from everything, from yeah, it's in some ways closer to Philadelphia and London than it is to Charleston. But that's a, and in fact, uh, 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 thousands of those settlers who came down, they came down from Pennsylvania yeah. on the Great Wagon Road and the, then the Catawba Trading Path in, into the into the South Carolina backcountry. Which leads to that further division that you don't see in, say, Virginia. Um, and we don't have time to get into that, but between the yeah. backcountry and the low country aristocrats, yeah. they really, right. they, they, they haven't seen each other in a, in a way. Um, they haven't right. been part of each other. Um, and of course the irony, the irony of the revolution, uh, in the Carolinas in Georgia is that it was begun by the gentry in the low country, the rice Kings, as I call them, mm-hmm. uh, and saved by the backcountry rebels, whom the Rice Kings called a pack of beggars <laughs> or crackers. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, going from Camden to Kings Mountain, we have several other clashes. Then uh, Cowpens, another thousand British, more or less, are lost, captured, killed or captured. Um, and now we have this great chase, this highly dramatic chase that you've talked about in Road to Guilford Courthouse with Cornwallis pursuing Nathaniel Green's army uh, through the, through North Carolina in a sort of thrilling, will they make it across the river or won't they sort right. of cinematic style. Who is this Nathaniel Green? Um, why don't you describe him? Uh, you and I, he's probably you and my favorite character of the American Revolution. So I'll, I'll shut up and let you go ahead and do it. 
Well, he was a he was a, a an iron master and forge master and small merchant in Rhode Island. Um, uh, limped uh, from childhood. Uh, I, I I don't know whether it was a birth defect or whether he hurt himself as a child. Had asthma uh, uh, throughout throughout the, uh, his life, and and in fact, uh, there's one letter to his brother during the war in which he said, "I have hardly slept mm-hmm. the last two nights because of asthma." And I really um, uh, uh, felt for him on this because my mother was an asthmatic. And I can remember that I can hear her heavy breathing uh, to this day. Uh, at any rate, um, as I say, he was forge master. Uh, he was a Quaker, but he was suspended uh, from the uh, local meeting of the uh, Friends for going to what was called then a public resort uh, with a friend, which could mean either a tavern or possibly a house of ill repute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later, during the war, he voluntarily, uh, he wrote to, to, to the meeting, uh, as, as, they're, as they're called, uh, in the Quaker religion, and uh, said he wished to withdraw. Uh, in fact, in other words, he, he, he was no longer a Quaker. Yeah. By, by, um, se- by, 17, by Brandywine, by late 1777, He's describing Quakers as if they're a completely separate species from himself. It's very interesting. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing is, he uh, he went from a private in the rear rank of his <laughs> militia unit uh, to to a brigadier general leading the Rhode Island Army of Observation to Boston, where uh, the British were besieged uh, in the city. Yeah, that, that used to cause a considerable uh, mystery until. I think it just in the volume 13 of the Green Papers, one of the addenda is finally uh, written proof that he actually was in the Rhode Island legislature. Uh, yes. So yes, he, he, he was. was. He was a political general in a certain sense. He, in uh, a certain sense, he was a political general. It, it actually, in m- multiple senses, but not in the way we usually think. Uh, he, no. He was a political general. He was promoted by politics, but he was also beautifully attuned to politics, as as we'll discuss um, Absolutely, yes. Uh, that came out in the South. Well, Washington immediately took to him, uh, thought that uh, his, uh, his his army of observation was under uh, better conduct uh, than uh, many of the uh, uh, units there. And he never lost faith in Green, even after his horrendous decision to uh, defend Fort Washington during the 1776 New York, New Jersey campaign. Um, fort Washington which, was a um, sort of well, a, was a, a fort at the northern tip of uh, New York. Uh, there were almost three thousand American troops there. Lots of stores, uh, valuable ammunition, other armaments, and Green felt that it could be held. And it was stormed by German troops and taken, and they lost all those men and 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 all that valuable uh, the valuable supplies yeah. uh, in the fort. But Washington still didn't uh, uh, did not lose faith in him, and in fact, you know, he became uh, well known as quartermaster general even when he was in combat command in New Jersey. After that Fort Washington fiasco, he set up supply depots the length of New Jersey mm-hmm. as the army was uh, was retreating. Uh, yeah, even during British during the Trenton campaign, he was still, yes during the Trenton. Yeah, campaign. And there's yeah. a moment where he's doing all that, and he's also acting as 
Washington was, I think he was more or less acting as Washington's principal secretary um, be, be, uh, while he's, uh, he's doing all these things uh, while serving yeah. in combat command as well. So yeah. um, eventually he does become quartermaster general. Um, and as we were t- discussing before we started recording, this is sort of an overlooked part of his, um, his tenure, but the, um, I, I, there's the oft quoted um, statement um, maybe by Omar Bradley that tactics is for amateurs and logistics is professionals for professionals. That's right. um, what uh, what do you think that Green shows about his sort of generalship in the South by being quartermaster general? Uh, well, he was on top of, uh, in the South, uh, which was a horrendous logistical problem. Uh, he was on top of it right from the beginning. Uh, all the supplies had to come from the North, and I make a point in the book of saying uh, we're on 18th century means and time, wagons drawn by horses at a walk. Uh, and and one example I use is uh, uh, Green's uh, request uh, to the uh, Board of War in Philadelphia for uh, uniforms for uh, William Washington, Colonel William Washington's Third Continental Dragoons. He uh, he says uh, theirs are in a state of decay after months of campaigning. Uh, he sends it. He sends the order in early April, uh, seventeen eighty one. Uh, the clothes arrive August thirty first hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, uh, so supplies were were very slow in coming. They were often hijacked uh, by uh, uh, militia and and local officials on the way. But he was on this from the very beginning, and in Salisbury set up what was called a laboratory to make, for example, ammunition pouches, mm-hmm. uh, which were very important. Yeah. Troops, troops needed uh, uh, a piece of equipment to carry their ammunition. So he was on this right from the beginning, but it was a, a, a just a horrible problem. And towards the end of the campaign, according to um, a diary kept by a Pennsylvania soldier who uh, was coming in as, as part of a reinforcement, many of the soldiers reduced to uh, blankets to cover their nakedness mm-hmm. because of the lack of clothing. The um, part of, well, actually probably the major part of his job as quartermaster in the North, as quartermaster for the, the, main, the Continental Army, was to be in charge of transportation of all the various goods that got to the, um, that's right. Yeah, got to the army, and yeah. one of the amazing, well, what, instantaneously, as soon as he arrives in the South, is commissioning maps. He's finding out where the fords across the rivers are. Yes. He's, uh, so it's it's he's also in charge of it's his his has an eye for the larger terrain, not just of a battlefield, which is okay, that's yeah. that's fine, but much more important to know the routes by which he can supply places, how he can get to places, um, knowing where all the mills are. I think Larry Babbitts points out. How many battles in the South, skirmishes to, to major battles, occur near a mill? Um, yeah. Because uh, even the British Army is carrying along uh, corn and kernels, dried corn and kernels, mm-hmm. and it has to be milled. Uh, you have That's to right. mill in order to have your flour to make your bread or your mush. So it's not surprisingly then so many battles occur near what's a really strategic place, which is yes. a local mill. And there's a mill every five miles throughout the South, more or less. Yes. Um, yes. So Green sees all this um, sort of instantaneously, and he and that's has that in, that map in his head, and you know on his saddle, 
mm-hmm. entire campaign. Um, what uh, after Guilford Courthouse, uh, which is a sort of Pyrrhic uh, British victory, um, something like what forty percent casualties on the British side. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's horrendous. Um, yeah. What's the there are two both Cornwallis and Green make um, sort of major decisions in some ways the most important decisions that I think generals made during the revolution. Um, how how would you describe them? Cornwallis decides to um, to head north into Virginia. He writes he 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 writes to a well. This is after he he leaves uh, Guilford Courthouse and. Uh, withdraws to the sea, to Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, he writes to another British general that he's quite tired of marching about the country in search of adventures. And (laughs) It's a strange, such a strange statement from a very smart man. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, then he says uh, um, that we should take our whole force into Virginia, and then we have a stake to fight for, and a successful battle may give us America. Well, we know what happened. He had his battle, and he lost his army and, and withered America. Yeah. Green, on the other hand, uh, decides uh, to, he wanted to fight Cornwallis again, but the militia left him, and he just didn't have enough men. Uh, so he decides to head for. He makes the decision to head for South Carolina. Yeah, that's that's sort of okay. a moment. Uh, that moment where he decides he turns off uh, from his pursuit of Cornwallis, and yes. the, and then heads south. It's, it was, and heads south. And what Cornwallis did, he disobeyed a direct order from the commander in chief, Sir Henry Clinton, to make sure South Carolina was secure before he did anything else, and he knew. South Carolina was not secure. He knew it. He, he even he even admits it in writing. Uh, but he still heads for Virginia. So Green must have. Um, it seems that Green expected that Cornwallis would be forced to follow him, and leave did, yeah. North Carolina and Virginia alone. So that that's why he, to keep the battle down in South Carolina and, and, right. and Georgia. Right. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't. And then Green fights uh, famously a series of defeats, which end up with him as the as the only as the strategic victor. Um, let's press through those quickly. First, there's Hobkirk's Hill, which is just a shambles. Um, then. Right. Yep. Yeah. He, he loses it. He loses to Lord Rodden at Hobkirk's Hill. Yeah. But, but, but Rawdon, after the battle, and then, then he retreats across the Watery River into rugged hill country. And if you drive that, that hill country there, you see why Lord Rawdon, who, who uh, uh, chased Green, mm-hmm. why Lord Rawdon refused to attack him there. Uh, Green's position in those hills was just too strong. Mm-hmm. And then Rawdon writes to Cornwallis that... Uh, the whole country is in revolt behind him. He's got this beaten but unbowed foe in front of him, so he decides to temporarily abandon the back country, which he does. And meanwhile, so Green has won the strategic he's victory. Won the strategic victory. And meanwhile, yeah. as he's as he's lost, other things are happening. Other parties. So there's uh, various forts, Fort Watson, Fort Mott. All these cha- <laughs> these chains of. Um, well, basically, these are sort of like the uh, in the Vietnam, these sort of fortified camps, these base camps that have been set up to really also buoy up the population. 
the loyalist population. Buoy up the population and also guard British lines of communication and supply into the back country. And these are all falling as as this yeah. is going on. I mean, uh, uh, Rodden evacuated Camden on May 10th, and um, then bing, 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 within the space of a couple of weeks, Fort Watson Falls, Fort Mott Falls, Fort Granby Falls, but, uh, those, those three main forts on the rivers, yeah. they fall. Yeah. And then uh, Green decides to go for the last big post, which is 96, um, right. so-called because of a mistaken uh, mile measurement. They believed it was 90, yep. 96 miles from, I think, Cherokee country. Um, right. And mean, and that simultaneously, uh, people are besieging Fort Augusta, which is now Augusta, Georgia. Um, he is, he, yeah, Green, uh, if I may interrupt here, yeah. Green sent Light Horse Harry Lee and his legion to Augusta to team up with uh, and and operate in tandem with Andrew Pickens and his militia people uh, in the um, in the siege of Augusta. Yeah, and uh, once again, Green is unsuccessful. This is a, uh, this is a battle. Um, well, Kings Mountain was um, all Americans except for one Scotsman, Patrick Ferguson. Uh, right. 96 is all Americans. There's every, everyone outside yes. the fort is an American. Everyone inside the fort is from New Jersey or New York or Pennsylvania. Um, actually, New Jersey and New York. Uh, the commander of 96 is a Tory, Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger of New York, of a prominent New York merchant family. Tough man, able man, highly intelligent. And he has with him uh, the uh, Delancey's New York Brigade. Hmm. And uh, the New Jersey Volunteers. So yes, as you say, it's all American. <clears throat> and they uh, and the Americans win. Uh, that is, the ones inside the fort hold out until Rawdon can relieve them. But again, Rawdon decides ninety six can't be held in the future, and he right. draws all troops from the backcountry. So yep. a string of defeats, and yet yep. Green has won the backcountry. Yeah, uh, I, I think we should also mention that Green and his um, his um, uh, chief engineer, uh, the Polish volunteer Colonel Tadeusz Kosciuszko, they blundered at 96. The key to taking 96 was to cut off the water supply, and the water supply was a, a, a creek or what was called the Spring Branch, about 172 yards from um, uh, the town stockade. Mm. And uh, they, 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 didn't, they never cut it off and because they felt that all the British had to do, uh, or the Tories, had to do was to dig down and, and they'd find water. Yeah. Well, at the, in the Star Fort, which was one of the fortifications for 96, they went down 25 feet and got a dry well. Yeah, no water. 25 feet by hand, would they like to put it? By, by, hand, by hand. Until they've yes. forgotten. Uh, yeah, it was so they they could not anticipate that there That's wouldn't right. be a well in yeah. the place. But, but again, as you say, Rodden writes to Cornwallis and he said, uh, uh, we can't uh, send provisions to 96 and, and there's no way out but to evacuate the garrison. Uh, Green is... Um, by this time, he, they, they, the Maryland troops uh, plead with him. I, I think this is an accurate account. They, they plead with him on the basis of their honor uh, not to leave 96 without a final assault. 
Um, that apparently is what happened, yeah. yes. And yeah. it's a very interesting moment in sort of um, officer-soldier relations insight into what the Continental Army was feeling by that time. Uh, yeah. th these guys are Irish immigrants, um, a lot of them Irish Catholic immigrants to Annapolis and Baltimore. Um, they're very recent immigrants, and yet they seem to have, by this sense, a certain sense of honor of being soldiers in the in the glorious cause, and it's a horrific and unsuccessful attempt to um, to break the uh, break the New Yorkers in New Jersey, uh, Jerseymen inside the fort. Right. Um, so there's a by August first, um, the British are out of the back country. I, I think we should uh, talk about Utah Springs, um, which is Green's, right. Green's final big battle in uh, South Carolina. He also is uh, like an 18th century gentleman, he wants to have the glory of finally winning a battle. Uh, he's eager to uh, find the British army and really destroy it. Uh, and it sort of almost happens, uh, but the result is um, it's a small battle like most American battles in the American Revolution. It's, it's tiny, tiny, tiny compared to Napoleonic warfare or, right. the, or the Civil War. Yet, I believe the proportion of casualties in Utah Springs is equal to the worst um, Civil War battle. So, let's uh, let's talk okay. about Utah Springs. Right. Uh, and uh, by the way, you mentioned uh, you know it was uh, tiny by the by the uh, in contrast to Napoleonic battles. Uh, when Napoleon was in power, he and Lafayette discussed uh, the American Revolution and. Napoleon was absolutely astounded at the small numbers of men involved. <laughs> when Lafayette would tell him, you know, uh, you might have 900 men on one side and 1,000 on the other. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, with uh, with Napoleon's battles, there were hundreds of thousands on each side. Yeah. But at any rate, Utah Springs. Nothing like a draft uh, by – nothing like a, uh, having a draft from a centralized course of that's, state. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, Utah Springs, he came up against uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, uh, who uh, was, wrote fawning letters to Cornwallis, but at, at, at that time we know nothing about his prowess in battle. He turned out to be a good combat commander. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, it, looked, it looked as if the, the, uh, Green was going to win that battle. Uh, the the, the uh, American he sent the American militia in first. They behaved splendidly. They traded volleys with British regulars, about yeah. fourteen volleys, uh, before uh, the British regulars came at them. Uh, British and, and Tory regulars, actually. Mm -hmm. it, it was uh, once more Delancey's New York Brigade that had left ninety six, and the New York Volunteers, uh, and um, and British units came at them with bayonets, and of course they fled then. They didn't have bayonets, they weren't trained to use them, and then uh, Green orders the um, the regulars forward. It, and uh, if I could, they, It is quite extraordinary that these militia, this, uh, uh, under Francis Marion, under Andrew Pickens, they've yes. been very successful on, in, in a way, Utah Springs is for those who know, who've heard me talk about cowpens before on some of the bonus yeah. podcasts. Um, it's Utah Springs is a curious way. He he has Morgan's set up uh, as at Cowpens, but this time they're all moving forward on the offensive. Um, right. So he's got right. the militia for it, and somehow these these guys who've been fighting this guerrilla war, 
uh, who've been fighting this defensive fire and fallback after three volleys war, yeah. um, they stand toe to toe and slug it out. Toe to toe. Yeah. And, and and I I chalk it up to their confidence in the men who led them. Yep. Francis Marion and Andrew Pickens. Yeah. Uh, had full confidence in them. Uh, in in those two leaders. At any rate, the regulars sweep forward, Maryland and Virginia regulars, the Continentals, uh, and they drive the British back. And uh, it it really appears that the uh, that the Americans are going to win this battle. Uh, and then and now there's a controversy. Yeah. Uh, recently, it has been claimed that the reason the American attack broke down was that the American regulars got tangled up with the tent ropes and stakes in the British camp. I just don't believe this. I don't believe it at all. Veteran troops are going to get... One thing about British camps at the time, they had streets uh, ranging from 59 feet to 99 feet. And they might have several streets depending uh, on the... um, uh, on, on the size of the camp. I think this camp probably would have had one street. And I put this street, uh, I had the cartographer put it on the map in the book. And there's going to be controversy over this. Uh, but at any rate, that's that's the way they would have gone by the street. They wouldn't have gotten tangled up in tents and, and tent well, it certainly and would. It, it certainly they would have had to change their formation, though, wouldn't they have? To, they would from line yes, breast to column? In, in, in the column. Yeah. Yes, I, still think that, into, I still think that would explain something of their, because when they came out the other end of the street, they're in, they're in uh, close proximity to the, the famous the house on Utah Springs. The brick which, house. The brick house, which is fortified and which has got riflemen and musketeers in it. Um, right. And uh, right. Who, are, who are opening fire on anyone who yeah. comes and, near. And, uh, the, of course, the this story for years was that what they did, the American regulars uh, broke in, went into the tents looking for booze and loot. Mm. And that this... Uh, broke down the offensive. This was testified to by Otho Holland Williams, who commanded the Continentals uh, at at the battle. Um, 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 uh, uh, a man whose uh, reports of the of the first uh, American campaign in the South is widely accepted. Mm-hmm. And he was on horseback. He could he could definitely see what was happening. Yeah. And he testified that they got out of hand, out of control. And uh, we're looking for booze and uh, and plunder. And there's a um, there is a um, um, uh, a pension application. Um, like I think his name was Britt. But at any rate, this pension application that I quote, he says the same thing. He he was in that uh, uh, among that group going into the uh, British camp. And um, he says the same thing. And I think, okay, this was done some 54 years later. This is the kind of a thing that would stick in an old man's brain. Hmm. And uh, if I'm an authority on anything, I think it's an old man's brain. Uh, (laughs) I mean, there are 60, 70 years ago, there are things I draw a complete blank on. But other things I have a vivid recollection of. Uh, And... uh, uh, I, I think I think we can take that pension application um, uh, and accept it. My, my, and I accept I accept Alpha Holland Williams' testimony too. Yeah. My feeling is that it's, uh, that there's no law against both being true. 
Um, it's uh, obviously it's a chaotic uh, situation. Yeah. And um, it's um, there's weird things happening on either ends of the battlefield. Uh, Colonel uh, William Washington by this time has been uh, on horse. His horse has been shot. He's been captured. Yep. His uh, his flank attack is breaking. Has broken down. Light horse Harry Lee is galloping around. No one knows where he is. It, it appears That's right. half, half the time. So there's tremendous confusion, even more than yeah. normal. Yeah. Um. It and also I think they had marched 12 miles. Um. And there's a yes. the famous story on the return march how they actually drain a small pond of water of uh, mm. of um they were really thirsty i, I think by oh, yeah. this time and they had been oh, sure they had some of them must have fired about 20 or so rounds already um that yeah. gunpowder uh biting cartridges off having it blow explode right near your face it yeah. uh, it dries a person out even more than yeah. fighting in august in south carolina right. so there's a lot of there's a lot of of, of things are going on there i'm sure well, I'm one sh- one one very interesting thing about uh, William Washington at that battle, yeah, uh, and also Lee. Uh, w- when William Washington charged uh, the uh, Marshbanks infantry that was posted in 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 a scrub um, uh, in a scrub, what what's called in South Carolina a blackjack thicket. It's mm-hmm. awful. They were posted in there. And and he he left his infantry behind. He left Kirkwood's Delaware Light Infantry behind, and he just and he charged. And of course, it was a disaster, as you say. He was unhorsed. He was wounded. He was taken prisoner. Um, his uh, command was uh, uh, decimated as they galloped along this blackjack thicket, which they couldn't penetrate. He tried to penetrate it. Mm. John Eager, Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard, that paragon of regimental commanders wrote shortly thereafter uh, the absurdity of cavalry charging infantry in a thick wood was shown at Utah so as far as I'm concerned that takes care of any defense of Washington's actions uh, at uh, at Utah Springs and uh, as far as Lee goes, Lee once again showed that uh, as, as a partisan fighter, he was unmatched, I think, in the continental ranks. But uh, when it came to large battles, he tended to wander. And uh, He always wanted he to be where the fighting Guilford was. Courthouse. Yeah. yeah, he did it at Guilford Courthouse, and he did it at Utah Springs. Um, so then, uh, in a conventional telling, um, nothing happened until December 14th, 1782, when Green marches into Charleston, uh, with the army. But in fact, um, I think uh, you would, you of course disagree with that. And uh, gosh, at least half of your book is about what happens after that, because Green is really, as we said, he's a political general. And one of the amazing things that has made me fascinated from, about Green from the very beginning is the way in which um, he sees it as an American general's job to be deferential to civil authority, even if civil yes. authority does not exist, he will create it and that so that he has right. something to be deferential to. Yeah. So the next year and some months of his war of Nathaniel Green's war is nurturing um, civil authority 
in that's right in the Carolinas you know, and Georgia. Yeah, I, that's why I spent I spent so much time on it because uh, uh, or, or space on it because I think it's an important part uh, of of the Green story. Yeah, uh, as you say, his deference to civil authority, uh, and and you know, he was as one with with his chief on this, George yes. Washington, the, the primacy of civil power. I, I think, um, and we, I think, forget we forget that they were both. In, uh, we now know that Green was a elected politician, and and so was Washington. That often sort of passes over our heads. Yeah, yeah. That's people don't realize that about Washington. Yeah. He was in the Virginia Assembly for many years. And they're they're both very practical politicians. And yes, they strongly believe in the institutions in which they had served. Right, right. So how does much so. how does Green do that? How does Green? in some ways, uh, recreate um, South Carolina civil authority and Georgia's civil authority? Well, he, he urged Governor John Rutledge, the wartime governor, to return to South Carolina uh, from Philadelphia. Uh, Rutledge did, and from there on, he and, he and Green worked hand in glove to restore civil government. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, as you know, the, the assembly finally met at Jacksonboro. Um, as as and, close to uh, Charleston as they could get, basically. Uh, they were 30, 35 miles from Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he moved the army there, of course, to protect them. Uh, on, uh, uh, he, he stationed the army between Jacksonboro and Charleston so there wouldn't be any raids on the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um. He has tremendous problems with his army throughout that year. I mean, yep. it, it makes Valley Forge look um, like a campout. Yeah, malaria, um, and um, with when when the Pennsylvanians got there, and of course they had they had mutinied up north. Yeah, and some of the mutineers had um, they've been pardoned, and they did the same thing to him down there, and that's when uh, he hanged one sergeant. And uh, sent the others. Uh, he sent the others to Salisbury to the laboratory to work on supplies. Hmm. Yeah. And he's got his uh, and his senior officers are leaving. Howard leaves. Uh, the uh, the wonderful Robert Kirkwood of Delaware leaves. And Lee leaves. And Lee is suffering from which. Obviously, I'm no psychologist, so I'm allowed to diagnose. Uh, under uh, <laughs> he's obviously suffering from PTSD of some kind. Um, he's, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm not. I'm not sure. I think I, I, I'm a little reluctant to uh, psychoanalyze yeah. it well, from two two and a half centuries away. I am in print, but on the podcast, I'll be happy to do it. Um, okay. Yeah. He's, he's oh, he, 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 there's a there's a certain manic manic depressive uh, cycle throughout uh, Harry Lee's life, and uh, oh yeah, he's certainly yeah. in the depressive state uh, in. Um, We've ta- I've talked about this in a previous podcast with Ryan Cole, who just wrote the most recent Harry Lee biography, and there does he is definitely if he's manic depressive, then he's certainly in a trial, a trough yeah. at that at that moment. Um, and Green handles him lo- lovingly. I mean, yes, he does. Literally, literally yes. yeah, yeah. But uh, eventually, he makes it and uh, marches into Charleston. Um, what uh, if, as we're trying to wind this up? Um, what would you want people to take away from this story? Um, uh, not simply, of course, that the American Revolution uh, uh, was important in the South. Um, that's no. that's obvious. That's that's easy. Um, but what's the sort of thing that you think that people might miss out on in this story? 
Um, I, th- I think Green's leadership abilities. Um, you know, here's a guy who lost, who fought three major battles, lost them, conducted a siege, lost it. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 a hasty a hasty judgment would say, hey, what what is it with this guy? Uh, uh, he, he, he could never win a battle. Uh, you, you have to look, I think, at, at uh, the whole strategic uh, uh, picture, but then he never lost heart. He mm-hmm. never lost heart. I mean, he had moments of his own uh, uh, depression and everything, but uh, he never lost heart. He kept at it. Uh, he paid close attention to the to, to the whole uh, civil government um, uh, progress, and uh, I, I I think he was a great general. I really do think he was. I think he was brilliant. Yeah, I hesitate. Even though we even though we lost battles. Yeah, I hesitate to use the word genius uh, anymore. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's a genius, but. I would say he, he would he approaches it closer than just about any um, American general in the revolution. I, I that's think. true. I think that's true. And I, yeah, and he I, does he does approach it. And I mean right. that I mean that in, in his way as an unschooled man to yeah. up, go somehow fall back to first principles and yeah. and work his way from there towards um, something that he, right. he he didn't. I mean, it, it, it seems uh, a little bit much to compare him to Lincoln in that way. But there's a way in which Lincoln, by knowing a very few simple things, reading a lot yeah. of Shakespeare, reading Euclid, um, reading yeah. great speeches, is able yeah. then to reason himself to to yeah. great heights. And Green comes pretty close to that, I think. Yeah, and and Green was widely read. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, um, uh, evidently knew a great deal about the Latin poets, according to uh, a French officer who overheard him uh, talking about the French poets on his way south. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Jack, thanks so much for being with us. Um, this has been a great, a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.